welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. My name is Sarah Shackett, Associate Craft Editor over at IndieWire, and I could not be more stoked to bring you this conversation with Natasha Leone, the co-creator, showrunner, director, star, uh, inimitable presence on the fantastic Russian Doll. Season two just came out this spring, and I was so excited to sit down with Natasha to talk about what was worth going back to. What games did the show still have to play? It turns out a lot of them. And Natasha was willing to really go deep on a lot of her thinking and and the influences, the, the cinematic and philosophical influences that helped shape the decisions behind the main conceits of Russian Doll and its ethos, what stayed the same between season one and two. There's always a new sci-fi trick, uh, but these characters are, are fucked up in very relatable, timeless ways. And Natasha really got into that balance of genre and filmmaking conventions and the sort of human desires that undergird the stories she tells. She's an incredible filmmaker, an incredible thinker. And this conversation, I think, is really valuable to folks who take that like 10,000 foot view on stories and series uh, and want to see what's it all about, man. The Filmmaker Toolkit podcast is sponsored this week by Station Eleven for your Emmy consideration for outstanding limited series and all other categories. The HBO Max original Station Eleven is an apocalyptic saga spanning multiple timelines. It tells the stories of survivors of a devastating flu as they attempt to rebuild and reimagine the world anew. All episodes now streaming on HBO Max. It is not as much of a pandemic bummer as you think it is. It's actually very cool and doing a lot of interesting things. Great Dan Romer score. You should definitely check out Station Eleven. So without further ado, here's a conversation with Natasha Leon. I would love to start with if there were any particular lessons from season one that you had in your head as you were going into the process of making season two and, and having a different conceit that you needed to teach the audience how to interpret visually. Yeah, well, I'm really happy to be here, too. And mostly I'm uh, happy that although people can't see us, my camera is upside down and we are neck to neck doing this <laughs> chat. This is definitely the visual conceit and lesson I'll be taking into my further Zooms. Can't wait for season three. <laughs> so, I mean, emotionally, as a, as a, somebody putting things in the world, the biggest revelation for me was that people were seemingly willing to go on a real ride that was, you know, a deep one and uh, sort of buoyed by that, we in the writer's room felt the sort of courage and encouragement to kind of take a big swing and see just how far we could go and ultimately just really trying to say something or show show a world through a very specific and honest point of view of, listen, I mean, I'm often confused that, you know, things we watch or accept are kind of about meat cutes and coffee shops. Like as a human being, I experience great confusion around that as the sort of status quo of, you know, an externalization of life because I just don't identify with that experience at all. So in many ways, it's also was just, yeah, the sort of encouragement to say, okay, your point of view is also valid and let's see what's next. 
Amazing. I had the pleasure of, of sitting down with Joe, the composer, a little bit ago and talking about that central conceit of, of Subway time travel kind of shaped and informed some of the choices he was making. So I would love to talk to you about Subways, how that came about as sort of the literal vehicle for the story and kind of what that informed for you when you're thinking about the show visually, sonically, emotionally. Yeah, well, uh, Joe, our composer, is really incredible. And I mean, we definitely, you know, knew going in that it was sort of the Pink Floyd season and in which ways could we use these kind of, you know, detective, what we call the on the case cues, but sort of build on them sonically with that world that you're describing of this kind of, you know, Jacob's Ladder game into this underbelly. And obviously there are some people like, you know, your Cronenbergs and Dave Lynch's, they just play in such a, you know, fun way with sound. I remember even in season one, we would often talk about sort of the party and this kind of desire to throw sound around that room, like the way Altman used to and stuff. Not all of it comes to uh, fruition or be fully realized. I mean, visually, a big one for me is always this idea of playing with time, sort of a la Nick Rogue, even when we get into mm -hmm. the editing and everything. I just love that sense of fractured time. I think even as a kid, was so in love with Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America, as you know, I often talk about, obviously, all that jazz and Jojo Dancer, Your Life is Calling and even the singing detective in the sense of a story about somebody who's like from the hospital bed looking back at a life. Mm -hmm. But I often think about that phone call ringing and, you know, De Niro in bed in the opium den that sort of launches us into a, a tale back through time in Once Upon a Time in America and the sort of Sergio Leone version. He's also the person I most often try to lie about and say that there's nepotism there, even though our names are <laughs> spelled differently and clearly there is no relation. But I do wish there was. So, yeah, I mean, the actual uh, subway device is Amy Poehler's fault. And I say that because I'm the one that actually had to deal with the MTA. Uh, and, uh, you know, but it was a, a brilliant idea. She came into the room in sort of early days, you know, post uh, sort of initial blue sky, but early enough that we were still sort of really breaking this device of, you know, what was going to be this sort of portal, for lack of a better word. And she was like, well, if you're already going to be on the six train going up to visit Ruth at Lenox Hill, why isn't it just the train, mm -hmm. you know, kind of cut out the middleman? It was definitely like sort of a, a white light moment in the room. Probably also that idea of like abandoned sort of limited perspective. I, I don't even think that we had registered the ability for the budget, you know, not to say that we weren't talking about things like the taking of Pelham 123 and sort of understanding that this was a subway season, obviously, to show that love's dealing in the underground and sort of fringes of society and sort of underground made front and center, you know, uh, fringe mainstream. It just really felt like, oh, shit, right. That's the fucking thing that what's more New York than the subway and what's, you know, more New York than anyway on TV right now than the show. I say that because of my love of uh, Sipowitz and <laughs> NYPD Blue. I happened to get the screeners when I was back home in New Orleans, and it made me homesick for New York. Just all of those shots of the Astor Place station. Oh, yeah. I mean, I got to tell you, I was sending out like these uh, not finished, uh, you know, there you have temp VFX screeners and everything, and you don't have your sound in there. <laughs> it's, it's harrowing. It really feels terrible. I think at one point they sent out uh, episode four without any of the subtitles, and I was like, Jesus Christ, how arty do these people <laughs> think I'm trying to be? Because... Even I have a line. So it's wild that that's part of the process. I mean, if left to my own devices, things would really mm -hmm. be more like synecdoche and things would get truly finished before. Oh, and I guess I didn't really answer your sort of first question about, yeah, this sort of high concept uh, conceit and the, you know, the elevator pitch of season one yeah. Groundhog Day and season two Quantum Leap. But uh, it did just really feel fun and, and right. I always enjoy when the show is sort of playing on, you know, at least like three levels of sort of this... Uh, you know, outer world of sort of 
plot and conflict and this uh, inner world of really, you know, Nadia's sort of first person point of view through it all. And then this kind of third level of this sort of high concept, like what is life? And that's almost, you know, this sci-fi game. It's also just, you know, properly funny. Like early days when we had pitched the show to, uh, although it really makes me laugh, the idea of kidnapping your inner child. I just think it's funny because I'm like, how much does therapy actually work? <laughs> so what about this? Uh, but, you know, I remember the early days of like that, um, you know, Netflix pitch game was very much the, a season two. It was always meant to be anthological. I just don't, I think we assumed that, you know, all the characters were going to maybe be in different wigs. And so Nadia was going to, we had sort of this loose idea that she was going to be a kind of cookie Mueller figure um, in the sort of gentrification of the East Village, Tompkins Square Park, and that I would be playing my mother. And of course, Chloe yeah. played her so iconically in season one. And it's like, who doesn't want to see Maxine as Maxine? And why would you let go of Alan? So I think that sort of shifted organically. But at the heart of it, there is a sort of matrilineal aspect to this matryoshka that is baked into the no, DNA totally. of the show. Um, and I wanted to ask you about uh, shooting those because we, I mean, Nadia just imposes her perspective on the world wherever she goes. She's wonderful in that way. But we've got shots that blend you and Chloe as Nadia and Nora. And I'm curious kind of like what your process was conceptualizing that visually and, and, you know, getting it to, to translate, uh, so beautifully for the viewer. Well, thanks. And I mean, there's, yeah, there's definitely like on a technical level, there's kind of all of the business to do around, you know, an elegant Texas switch. And, you know, I mean, we did so much. We just did endless work. You know, Alex Bono is the producing director this year and I, I just adore him. He's extraordinary. I obviously I knew him through Fred and documentary now and he just, uh, you know, it was, such a beautiful partnership and really sort of getting to the end of a thought. And we would sit with Peter Beck, who is also my storyboard artist that I initially met on my first short uh, with Chung Hoon Chung, who's a cinematographer, who's, you know, a mind blowing uh, dude altogether. And obviously for essentially because of, um, you know, the language barrier there since Chung's Korean, we communicated through, you know, storyboards more than anything. So I think um, as a director, that was really where I was learning this very specific way of going about, you know, autodidact's version of, of, of filmmaking. It's, of course, you know, so many people do it, but we would sit with this uh, guy, Peter, and, and who, who is fucking awesome. And Ula um, Pantinkos, who's our incredible cinematographer this year, who really just, you know, Chris Teague is obviously unreal too in, in season one. And Ula really kicks it into another level. I remember she gave me a, you know, she's uh, Polish, but UK based. And so she gave me this copy of this uh, Michio Kaku book called The God Equation. He's kind of one of our foremost futurists and sort of the foremost string theorist. And I was like, oh shit, she really knows what we're up to, uh, you know, on a core level. Cause you know, she would always be talking about sort of framing the shots kind of like within this sort of language that would kind of almost essentially Amazing. keep the ones and zeros baked in, you know, like there's, it's kind of this very messy sort of, you know, Lebowski-esque uh, or sort of a long goodbye sort of approach to it but that's really the character back of that there's almost like a mathematic game that gets played in the show obviously and so i think she was really onto that and then of course you know i'm just like this um i don't know what kind of a sickness i have i think i'm one of those people that has you know uh movies as church or something and <laughs> yeah. only really understands life in that way so it was just this endless um you know it's the same with season one or sort of anything i guess i've done but obviously a lot there are a lot of um, persona shots baked into the DNA of that or even, you know, I mean, I remember the, I was so spooked in the first season that I went to go see a double feature that I created for myself because one was at the film forum. I saw a persona and then I ran across uh, town to, uh, I think it was like 
Bam had um, possession playing. Oh, Lord, and, that is a crosstown. Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> okay, now I'm ready for tomorrow. Okay, I'm ready to shoot. We were pulling on that. We were also pulling kind of from Michael Mann from Touch of Evil, especially in episode five. And, you know, obviously we're always kind of playing with a bit of a Knights of Kiberia game. I remember there's this uh, Nick Rogue shot that we, we really cut because it was just, you know, too excessive. The sort of practical set of... Uh, this kind of, uh, you know, extended padded cell. Obviously, we're playing with a lot of clockwork and train spotting games. And, you know, so it's throughout the uh, show, you're sort of seeing like, you know, obviously all these kind of top shots that aren't really in the lexicon quite as much anymore, or Midnight Cowboy is obviously in there. And, you know, you can't really make something that's kind of uh, 80s New York without getting into all your King Comedies and Taxi Drivers and all this kind of a thing. So, so, so that always has a uh, a presence, but I think in general, like the sort of, you know, lazy mm-hmm. sort of like Altman zooms and stuff that were really fun and sort of long lens stuff that were just, you know, felt kind of period accurate. And a lot of the game that we're trying to play was sort of how to kind of keep it in the world of our show, but just kind of kick it into another gear yeah. so that it felt like they could all be of a world. And luckily enough, you know, obviously the feeling of season one of Russian All is weirdly sort of already kind of 80s New York after hours in its own way. So hopefully it feels at a different level, but still, you know, of a kind of uh, multiverse or whatever. Yeah, totally. And the choice of framing, the choice of perspectives, like it it translates and, and actually, you know, comes together. I'm curious what it was like to be back in that in that party set. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, that was also, I mean, I remember early days of conceiving the show and, you know, I was always so obsessed with uh, movies like uh, Exterminating oh, sure. Angel and sort of this uh, Bunuel kind of, uh, you know, game. And so the party was always, you know, like this kind of cracked environment. And then just the idea that it is sort of historically accurate to canon of the show that that was once upon a time, you know, a, um, a yeshiva is just funny. The idea that those two worlds can converge. I mean, ultimately, again, it came out of sort of like, you know, budget necessity of, I remember just before Christmas, you know, it was Christmas break. It was kind of like, fuck, how do we show that we broke time? You know, obviously, if you can have King Kong come through and sort of like uh, topple the Chrysler building, that's one way to do it or a tidal wave or an earthquake. But, you know, it's not that kind of show. And then it was like, holy shit, the party, that's yep. our world. Just break our own internal world. And you know, the place that would be sort of the eye of the storm of sort of inciting event worst nightmare. You know, this is the sort of reset location of this video game that we're in. And obviously we're doing a lot of things with a sort of similar framing. You know, it's always like that sort of Kubrick stair game that you're seeing of her in the mirror. So there's like an element of that, that whenever those train doors open on Nadia and Alan, yeah. what we would sort of call the hero shot sort of plays that kind of reset game this season. And, you know, so to kind of like deliver her back to that location and under these very peculiar and sort of selfish conditions, the ultimate place to show, I mean, I think that Nadia has this instinct and, and obviously identify with it of sort of like, but what if there was anarchy, right? Would that not be sort of an ideal state? Is life not too organized? I'd also gotten, I became really taken with this book by this guy, Carlo Ravelli, mm-hmm. called The Order of Time. And this idea that, you know, we may not be seeing time correctly, but is it not this sort of ordered time that gives life meaning? And obviously, you know, back of that is this sort of Victor Frankl man's search for meaning. That is sort of what the show is about. And, you know, Doug Hofstetter's strange, um, I'm a strange loop book. And so, you know, this, these games and Carlo would talk about, you know, the arrow of time and this idea of why can I remember the past, but I can't remember the future. Yeah. And 
you know, so for Nadia, this idea of like, well, why? Why do I have to fucking play by the rules, right? If I can live and die, why can't I just, you know, sort of break time, reset, reframe, and let's let's yeah. start let's start this thing over. And the idea of putting her in this situation that would mean that suddenly all of those uh, other experiences may become sort of meaningless in a way. That sort of like hollow man experience that perhaps it would be like if we could. It's almost like a vampire complex of if you're going to live forever, but then, you know, everyone, you know, someday will die. What does it look like to have this, you know, fantasy of anarchy? Where does meaning go in that? And, you know, ultimately, it's sort of a show that's also about having to a season that's about having to become an adult, whether you're caught up to it or not. So there's a knock on the door. It's coming from inside the house and it's saying, hey, get with it. You're 40 now. You're supposed to show up for this uh, parent and you're the adult now. You're the caretaker. And which obviously goes into kind of all this sort of shining stuff that Leslie and I always love so much. And, you know, the idea of being the caretaker on some deep sort of spiritual level. What does that mean? Why is that a horror film for the psyche? And uh, so, you know, she can't show up. She kind of evades that responsibility Mm -hmm. by going down that train so conveniently located so that she can escape, hang out with young Ruthie, who doesn't want Annie Murphy the most like (laughs) I fucking love that person. I love hanging out with them. But that really, there is no way to sort of circumnavigate sort of the events of one's own life. It comes for you, whether you're on that bus willingly or dragging, kicking and screaming. And so Nadia has to kind of therefore catch up to in sort of seeing what undoing Mm -hmm. and untethering all of history is, you know, perchance you become caught up to this availability for some kind of present moment or adulthood because you realize all the complaints and games in the world aren't, you know, no one gets out of here yeah. alive, basically. Um, so what are you going to do with it, you know? It's just so stupidly cool that it's just like her going down the train and then coming back up. It expresses itself so visually, too, which is awesome. Yeah, it just feels fun. And it's and the party just really felt like fucking <laughs> Alan is just like, Jesus Christ, lady. I yep. mean, we got to get out of here. And for her to see all that and be like, oh, these are the things I've I've overcome. And it just felt like a very clear way Mm -hmm. to fracture time of within the language that the audience also understands that those are the events of the past. You know what I mean? So you don't have to do a bunch of horse and carriage game. It's just as soon as you hear Sweet Birthday Baby or hear Harry Nelson, you know you are not in the present moment. So we're kind of participants in that. But yeah, I love the the train game. And I love that it's a you know, obviously, like, you know, we wrote so many drafts and, and there were so many ideas kicking around. And there was also sort of a whole multiverse sort of um, B plot that was really like, a, you know, a Nadia Allen game of like alternate timelines and alpha and beta Nadia and Allen and universes. A lot of that ended up getting uh, cut out because, of you know, sure. uh, COVID and, and stuff that, you know, you just can't kind of shoulder both those overages and all that story. And Ultimately, is uh, I think for the best because it really sort of clarifies and, and makes you zone in in what's already obviously a very expansive and dense season. But I, I, you know, part of that was we did have a lot of sort of games of figuring out the the you know the rules of the train, and we sort of mapped all that out, and you know, even in, in some cases, shot parts of it. And for Alan's discovery of him, can we just catch up to the fact that we've all seen movies before? Yeah, we know what this is. This is a sort of spiritual, emotional, theological fucking quest into the abyss. This is not about the rules of of Back to the Future or anything else. Exactly. I wanted to ask, because the show is so specific about a specific experience of New York, and so to, to broaden it out to East Berlin and Budapest during the Nazi occupation seems daunting. Like, what was your research and process for getting those places right? 
Yeah, I mean, I'd become really fascinated, actually, with a uh, podcast, uh, Oh, uh, you know, Ryan's wife. That's how I even know Ryan, is I'm a huge Karina Longworth fan. Must remember this. You must remember this. And so I remember that there was this, uh, you know, one of the, the episodes was about Paul Robeson and, and Lena Horne mm-hmm. and sort of the, the blacklisting of Black America. And that it felt like this, you know, area that I had not heard that much about in an arena that is obviously, you know, well-traveled in cinema, you know, and I read more and more about it, Black Reds, and I would talk to her about it. And did I just kept doing sort of research about, you know, this really an intense swing to sort of decimate Black intelligentsia in uh, America. And there's this guy, Canada Lee, and there were just a lot of really fascinating characters. And so I became, I guess, really just fascinated with, yeah, Black intelligentsia in the Blacklisting era and sort of what you know, communism meant to cross the board. In other words, for Paul Robeson is like, you know, making a case, I guess, uh, you know, especially in that podcast for like that it's, uh, it's not like it was, you know, so exactly, great yeah. back home in the, in the States in that moment to be sort of a black intellectual. And I always think of Alan and, and his family. And we think that maybe actually his dad is Egyptian, Charlie and I, when we talk about it, hmm. but obviously his mother is, uh, is a doctor. And so we sort of thought that he comes from this kind of science family and the idea that Agnes would be an engineer. And then we have found out about this, you know, through research, this sort of like socialist project that was, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, brain drain effectively of, uh, so Ghanaian sort of a engineering student would end up realistically right. in East Berlin in that time and sort of, uh, you know, find herself as an engineer in New York and, you know, uh, therefore sort of, you know, located, um, in a similar convenience to Nadia and Alan meeting each other in the deli in season one. And this sort of idea of almost, you know, a karmic consequence or kind of, you know, it was, there's, there've always been in this sort of dance of a spooky action at a distance, this kind of, I don't know what, what the hell it is. You know, <laughs> what am I? I'm not a quantum physicist. I'm obviously a high school dropout, but. You know, these ideas of like a sort of double slit experiment and and that they are sort of um, inextricably linked, these two characters. So the idea of taking that back in time and just all these, you know, different eras where I, I do think that Nadia and, and Alan are both characters who are really searching for freedom on some level, like freedom from their own minds and freedom of the soul and like, you know, freedom to discover what it is when we say these sort of lofty platitudes around, you know, to thine own self be true. What the fuck does it mean? You know, who is self and, you know, like what is true? So I think that sort of setting them up in um, this way of a kind of look back to kind of look forward to almost, it's my, you know, personal belief that, you know, for, for in most cases, it's like, you know, we come by our damage honestly. I don't think that, you know, even when they say that very basic thing, and obviously I, I, I love actors and I, I love human beings, you know, and I learned so much from kind of Cassavetes on Cassavetes or Sidney Lumet making movies like this kind of idea of like, really, I just fucking, you know, I, I, I love seeing human beings be human beings uh, in such a big way. And this idea that they could see that perhaps they have weirdly more in common yeah. with this sort of skip generation of their grandparents or something, you know, like. This idea of a survivor or this idea of, you know, Agnes and Alan, this woman who's sort of saying, you know, it's uh, my life to live, even when you have these kind of, in his case, a very, an uptight mom that's just sort of saying, like, can you be a sort of high functioning participating member in society and not binge eat, be obsessed with your ex-girlfriend who's cheating on you, ex-fiance and jumping <laughs> off the roof? Can you like just do this thing? You know, you're so handsome and yeah. you have such great posture. Let's go. And he's saying, I don't know if that is 
my path, you know, and for Nadia to be like, what is it? What does it mean to have this kind of schizophrenic mother and all this baggage from that? And that is right. The worst nightmare is like becoming the mother. And it's saying, hey, maybe you've actually got something in common with your grandmother who survived some of these things. You know what I mean? Rather than thinking that we're so bound to kind of this one version of our worst fear of an outcome. Right. And it's also just like the process of inhabiting that challenge and like knowing that you could survive something else feels like it's very empowering for both of these characters. Yeah. I mean, like they're definitely, they're deep motherfuckers. Like it's funny (laughs) that they're odd couple, but ultimately I do think they're on a sort of shared philosophical quest. And I don't know, I got to say, I mean, I've really, you know, obviously been around and we all know about my, you know, drugs, et cetera. And, you know, so I've been to a lot of kind of high, low in life and Across the board, I do think that, you know, we're a pretty thinking, feeling people as a (laughs) sort of specimen group. And I don't know that that is isolated to the rarefied air of academia or anything. I mean, obviously, Horse is based on a buddy of mine called Horse from Tompkins. I don't think that sort of the existential riddle of this game and this setup is sort of lost on any of us. I like the idea that they are, they're both really on this ride for a, similar search. No, totally. I wanted to ask you one more thing about putting your director hat on for the entire series. Did that sort of change your process at all or sort of change any considerations this season? Or, you know, just I'm curious a little bit, what's it like to be the decider for every episode? First of all, it's a really fucking great team that I have this year with Alex and Ula and Diane Lederman, our production designer, and, you know, Todd Downing, our editor from also season one is just, you know, he's a huge part of this process. And of course, like we had incredible writers, Alison Silverman, Alice Jewish, Rocco Dunlap, you know, so a lot of other wonderful writers, new and returning. And, you know, we are in this together with Amy and, uh, you know, we have uh, Lily Burns, who's a great producer. And so there is kind of like a team system just to say that I don't know that I could fully, uh, you know, take on this challenge, you know, all by myself by any stretch. Uh, That's just not how a collaboration works. That said, I do think that there were some major, um, almost uh, revelations and and kind of good news things that came from. So it's funny that everybody says like, yeah, oh my God, how do you juggle all these hats? And from my point of view, it's really just one hat. You're holding the vision of the show in all areas, including almost where to spend the money. You know what I mean? What's important? Where to spend the time in a given day, mapping out your hours for the day per scene and which scenes and which order and who to cover first and this kind of a thing and what allows for improv and what doesn't, you know, where you need coverage and where you can get away with just telling the story with less. And, you know, I've told you a bit about this uh, sort of storyboarding, you know, shot listing process, which was heavily extensive and it did involve kind of, you know, very intense, almost like Linda Hamilton meets okay. uh, George Harrison mornings where I would kind of do a ton of push-ups and then just, you know, like listen to all things must pass and try to get my head in the game of both because, you know, you got to get there kind of, you know, like three hours early and you leave like five hours late. It just doesn't stop, you know, and uh, you come in and kind of like block the day and sort of set cameras going to hair and makeup and then you kind of come back. And one thing that I would do with all the actors is Sam Rockwell recommended this great acting coach to me. Obviously, I never went to acting school or anything. Uh, Terry Knickerbocker and Terry is awesome. And because of COVID, we knew that everybody would be ha- have their PPE on all the time. So you wouldn't be able to see people's faces in the blocking rehearsals. And so instead, what we did are very extensive sort of Zoom rehearsals. And Alex and I would actually sit with Terry and kind of go over all the scenes. And I would sit with the laptop open and not, you know, just work through Nadia's arcs for each scene, but sort of in the micro and in the macro, I would do these sort of like rewrites to make sure that everybody's sort of like 
arcs and beats and turns and switches were clearly delineated. Amazing. Such that when we got to set, there wouldn't be a series of open questions about, you know, the why and the how. So that that was sort of then we would do this uh, next round where we would rehearse with everybody. And then I would write in their sort of, you know, uh, anyone's like, beefs or complaints, why do I say this, or here's a pitch, and kind of adjust the script again at that level. And, you know, then sort of as we would go into storyboarding and shot listing, we would get ahead of all that so that things felt like they made sense and were real for people. And additionally, would sort of tell this other sort of, you know, mathy meets kind of like late 70s filmmaking style that we were trying to hone in on. That the whole thing was very methodical. And on the smallest level, what I noticed is it's just like, all I knew is that I won't be the squeaky wheel on the production because I know how tight we are for fucking time. Like, it's just so ambitious in terms of the, uh, yeah. you know, amount of setups per day and, and you know, the amount of scenes and, and, you know, practical locations. So, yeah, I would just be like fucking prepared, you know what I mean? In every direction in a way that it was, I think... You know, I can definitely, uh, like see it in the work, especially once we're in the edit that just like the focus is really intense. Mm. One of the great joys that even was happening from being in the room on season one that I think other people experienced as like, Oh gosh, she's a good actress. The difference was is that because I was there for the whole architecture, I would also know anything that was omitted. So often an actor will have a question like, what do the ellipses mean? Or, right. you know, why is she going from here to here? Or what does this turn mean? Why is she suddenly thinking about calling Maxine in this moment? And even if things had been cut for time or page count or budget, I always sort of knew the answer. So I was able to fold that into, or in many cases in both seasons, but especially this year, I would just riff and, you know, improvise little additional interstitial stuff to kind of keep in what had been taken out to make sure that that glue was there uh, just on instinct. Do you think this is a process that, I mean, I don't know that we get to wave a magic wand and suddenly live in a world without COVID, but that you would take forward with you on other stuff? Yeah, I guess you wouldn't know it just because I have big hair and uh, chain smoke, but I'm a pretty um, hyper-organized, obsessive, like workaholic, uh, you know, I just really believe in the work. Like my whole trip is the work and I really you know, I want to make things and I, I want very much for, uh, you know, and I, I don't want them to just be niche. Like I want also young girls to know that like the freaks have room to play too. It's, it's important to me, you know, because I know it's a very rare thing to kind of like get a shot. And I think it's important to shoot your shot when you get it. And I don't want to make things that everyone else has made. You know, I have a solid, uh, bit of information, especially relative to, uh, you know, some people I meet. So I think it's it's fair and it's valid. And I, I work real hard to uh, really make it something worth making and, and, and worth watching. You know, it really means everything to me. I also, I get a lot of joy from it. I feel properly uh, used up in a way, you know, sometimes <laughs> I think when I'm just uh, doing sort of like one job, it, it can be uh, a little confusing for me because I, I don't know what to do with uh mm the rest of my sort of thought life. And so this gig really suits me. I find it very calming. Like I can hear the click, you know, that sort of like Brick talks about to Big Daddy and Cat on a Hutton Roof. I'm like, ah, oh, there's that click, that white noise sound of almost, you know, being used up, right? Yeah. And uh, I've got somewhere to put it all. I, I do quite like it. I like the, 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 the puzzle of it. And I like to, to solve that puzzle. It's amazing when something, you know, can just flow through you and it feels right. I'd love to ask a little bit more detail about the, the storyboarding process and kind of what those back and forths were like and how it facilitated like quicker setups w when you were finally doing shot lists and, and getting things set up on set. Well, 
you know, for example, I mean, if we just want to talk about sort of, you know, persona shots for a second, let's sure. say in episode three, you have that game, you know, that Bergman is playing is so beautiful and they're sort of like, uh, sort of like nape of neck, you know, to head. And uh, so that's very much sort of the, the game with Chloe. And so in that uh, padded cell moment and in a weird way, then you want to sort of track that through to be in small and big ways throughout the season because it kind of ends up opening up a door to also this idea of sort of like female friendship, yeah. you know, throughout the season, whether that's Vera and uh, Delia or Nadia and Maxine or, you know, Maxine and Lizzie or Nora and Ruth or, you know, Nadia and Ruth, Nadia and Nora. So you start to sort of see these these uh, shadow games of themselves. You can kind of look at, at all the boards almost like a flip book and start to see what's sort of popping out, what's sort of salient as, as motif more clearly. Obviously, it's a real the show has a lot of you know mirrors in it so obviously that becomes you know quite clearly like for example uh climbing into the um the bathroom mm, uh, yeah. mirror in episode five was just an idea that you know i had on location that day actually it was it was scripted as a uh like a large mirror that moves to reveal a secret room but when we got there the the location that was presented was this sort of you know bizarrely constructed half kitchen bathroom and i was like but what if that was actually just like an abandoned bathroom thing and then she could just climb through it because your brain starts working in these sort of like switches of motif yeah. for, for lack of a better word we would sort of throw a an image of that sort of iconic, the persona, you know, poster into the chat and sort of say, this is what Nadia and Nora are doing here, Lenora. How do we get her there? Well, one's in a straitjacket, one's not, all right. And, you know, then Peter will start drawing. Sometimes he'll be like tracing above it or whatever. We'll sort of talk through the kind of camera angles of, okay, but where is the camera going to be? And if we're going to do, you know, this is a real up and down set. It's a, it's a practical set and we're going to be extending it. And, you know, what's the point of view of the doctor and where does this distortion happen and where does it actually feel real? You know, obviously we were really playing a kind of like fear and loathing yeah. sort of game in that episode altogether of this sort of distorted perspective, you know, which moment is which and which one is that going to be and kind of getting into just everything, you know, like lens sizes and what the dolly move is going to be and are we going to put the chair on the actual dolly or what are we going to do with this game exactly? And you kind of just really talk it down and, and dial it in. In the case of, let's say, something like a Crazy Eddie's where it's the persona game of, like, mm -hmm. remember the kid is looking at his mom on the projector screen and he's holding up the hand. And so, you know, that's sort of a direct rip of that for, which I feel like it's not the only time I... I don't know if it's in Videodrome or whatever, but I feel like I've seen it in other places. You know, all of these you've seen in other places. I mean, you know, obviously stealing is the only move. So, <laughs> you know, so then it's sort of, okay, but how do we include our kind of sense of, you know, Doug Hofstadter and introspective camera and sort of the looping game of the season and these kind of death cycles yeah. and life cycles and the nature of time? And how do we put that game on top of it? And, you know, you end up with this introspective camera game. Oh, great. It's at Crazy Eddie's because this isn't really going to work for us. And so then you're also additionally sort storyboarding and sort of mapping out and shot listing what parts of that are sort of, you know, VFX comps. And we had this great Gabe Regenton who's from this company Break and Enter. And this is also an area where, you know, thank God for Alex and Gabe and Ula that there's also this like experience level where so much of the game is like, how do you surround yourself with the people who yeah. you know know how to execute like this stuff? You know, because it's 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 one thing to see it. It's another thing to kind of do it correctly in a way that's as satisfying. I think that Marcel Dejeuner, who does the the hair in uh, season one and two and is here with me in Poker Face, I think he does like such a gorgeous job of like, you really see the way, you know, Nadia's hair color and, mm -hmm. and uh, Lenora's hair color kind of, they work, they're different, but the same, you know what I mean? And yeah. grandma's like, 
or that uh, Jen Rogan, who's, you know, an incredible costume designer, also did season one and Orange is the New Black. And she, uh, the way she's putting Chloe in these kind of early 80s outfits that sort of feel a little bit, you know, Fleetwood Mac meet whatever she is. And it's not the same sort of palette and such that, you know, my, my, my point being that when you see her on screen opposite sort of Nadia's classic Sam Kinison or whatever, it feels very uh, dialed in just because of the attention to detail and yeah. all of these areas. It's like there's so much specificity that has to happen to kind of get you there. And, and the storyboarding really feels like the first step of, yeah. is this an idea? You know, like it really helps also to clarify, for example, like what kind of a bug is this? You know what I mean? Is it how sci-fi versus not, how much do you want it to feel like a bug in the code of something where, you know, this coder, this Nadia, who is sort of deals in this world, in this world of video games, like what is her version of seeing a sort of schizophrenic bug in the code or, mm -hmm. you know, like sort of like a time collapse bug? What does that look like, you know, for her in the world of this show? So I think getting those drawings together obviously just really helps to then send it off to start seeing these mock-ups of what it's actually going to be and getting it all together. No, and it comes together really beautifully. Thank you so much for doing this, Tasha. I, I could talk to you for hours and definitely I'm going to go rewatch uh, Once Upon a Time in America tonight, but I've been told that we should cut for time. <laughs> yeah, I got I to gotta get back to set, but I'm really grateful and it's, 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 uh, it means a lot to me to be able to like get into it, you know, because I know uh, how hard everyone works and we really, uh, so it's kind of, it's, it's fun to get to, you know, really talk about the details of it, I got to say. So I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh, of course. Filmmaker's Toolkit podcast is also brought to you this week by Winning Time for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Drama Series. This critically acclaimed HBO original, Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty, is a fast break series about the professional and personal lives of the 1980s Los Angeles Lakers, one of sport's most revered and dominant dynasties, a team that defined an era both on and off the court. All episodes now streaming on HBO Max. Your uncle has watched it, and so should you.